Welcome, welcome to the Info Show. It is Wednesday, August 18th, recording this in the evening time. A wonderful day here in Southern California. I'm Steve. Paul is here. And usually this is a sports show. And we'll have sports. We'll get to sports later. But we wanted to start off with a topic that's been really controversial in the news lately. And that is the proposed mosque that is going to be built at Ground Zero. Now, if you haven't heard anything about this, uh, there's a Muslim group who is trying to build a mosque two blocks away from where the towers fell. And, of course, this has outraged all the right-wing people, you know, all this, uh, Sarah Palin and everyone has come out saying this is an outrage and they have to move it away. They can't build it there. But on the other side, you have the left-wing people saying, no, you have to respect people's religious freedom and let them build wherever they want. And then you have people who can't make up their minds and are down the middle, like President Obama, who at first came out with a speech giving support for the Muslim group, and then the next morning immediately retracted, saying he was not commenting on the wisdom of building a mosque so close to Ground Zero. You also have Mayor Bloomberg, who is a Republican, but has come out strongly in the camp of the Muslim group who wants to build the mosque. So... With this, I mean, this is unquestionably the most hot topic issue of this week so far. So, Paul, do you have any thoughts on this? I do, and I, you know, I'm honestly probably somewhere in the middle where I can't really figure out where I stand. I think that, you know, first and foremost, my initial inclination is that, you know, the religious freedoms of this country are most important and that those should be really respected in all cases. And, you know, if this wasn't, a Muslim group, obviously, proposing to build this mosque wouldn't be a big deal at all. And just because, you know, obviously, the, the attack of September 11th perpetrated by the extremist Muslim groups, you know, casts a terrible light. But there are many, many other, the majority of Muslims in this country are not out there to sabotage the United States. All that being said, I, you know, so my initial inclination is that, you know, build it, and I think it's, more than that, it's just a sign of tolerance and respect for the ideals that this country stands for. Um, all that being said, you know, I might feel differently if I, for example, had a loved one that was killed in that um, in the September 11th attacks. And, you know, it, it arguably just pushes the envelope a little bit. Right. It makes hard. you feel a little uneasy, right? Just a tiny exactly. bit uneasy. I mean, and being as how this is America – we respect people's religious freedom, and if they want to build a mosque wherever the zoning laws will allow them, then they should be able to do that. But it's not in the best taste. Yeah. I mean, considering how close it is, I mean, it's it's not like right across the street from Ground Zero, given it's two blocks away, and in New York, two blocks can be a completely different neighborhood. But that's still in close enough proximity where it can make people uncomfortable, and uh, it's just, I mean, that people in America will support people trying to build this mosque here tells you all that you need to know about Americans and how tolerant we are. But the fact that these Muslim people who are trying to build the mosque there have, I don't, I don't want to say the audacity, but it kind of is to build it so close to ground zero, kind of tells you how unsensitive that they are. Because, I mean, you have to realize that most Americans make that connection, that the people who bombed the towers were Muslim, and although not all Muslims are extremists, the people who were the terrorists that day did use religion as their motivation, as their reason for doing what they did. So making that connection, it's not far-fetched at all to say that you know, any Muslim connection close to 9-11 would immediately bring up thoughts of those two towers falling. And so yeah. that's why it makes me a little uneasy. But, you know, I in the end, yeah, I respect the people's rights to build mosques wherever zoning regulations will allow them to do so. I, I do feel, I feel uncomfortable. Um, ultimately, I would support it, though, because, you know, I feel like the fact that you know, obviously, it's human nature to, to just accept the fact that there's going to be a measure of intolerance there. But at the same time, the more you recognize it, the harder it is to get over it. And I think that, you know, if you continually 
think of these as, you know, if you continually lump the, the Muslim and Islam faith, you know, as, as being in, inexorably tied to the events of September 11th, which they are, but they're just not representative of everyone. And, you know, the actions of a few shouldn't dictate. It's not like this is an extremist Muslim group that's, you know, trying to form a mosque. It's, you know, just your typical everyday American right. Muslim who just wants to practice their religion. And, and if you look at... Be, I don't think they should be... It's, you know, the actions of of other people shouldn't be held against them, just like other Christians shouldn't be held accountable for, you know, previous acts like the Holy War and stuff like that. You know, it's just... Or, you know, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, it's it's tough to get over... It's tough to move forward as a country if we continue to to hold it against, you know, in such in such a way. Right, um, and if you look at what they're trying to build, it's not just a, a giant, like, cathedral-type mosque, you know, it's more of a Muslim cultural center. So it would be, you know, they ha- they're going to build a swimming pool and basketball courts and a rec room. You know, it's going to be like the Muslim YMCA. And yeah, they are going to have a worship room in there, but it's a little misleading to just call it a mosque because that, kind of brings this image up that it's just this giant temple or cathedral or something that's going up there, and that's not what they're trying to build. Right. For me, I, I get really kind of annoyed at the fact that so much of America just immediately will just jump to the conclusion of you know not supporting it because they can't understand or you know or aren't willing to you know kind of contemplate the entire fabric of this country. You know, it's it just it's really annoying how. They just kind of hold it against everyone, and you know, honestly, I would probably feel different if I had known someone that, you know, had been in the towers or you know knew someone that was involved, or even if I lived in New York, I'd probably feel differently. But at the same time, I think that our country has always been founded on these ideals and principles, and to kind of throw them away or shun them aside, I think goes against what makes our country great. Right. This is this is an issue where you understand why each side feels the way they do. You know, it's understandable and acceptable to be against this mosque, and it's also understandable and acceptable to support it. I think. Yeah, it, it's it's very much a fight between, you know, it's kind of like the fight between a lot of your ideological, you know, beliefs, and at the same time, also some human, more realistic beliefs. You know, I mean, no one no one wants, you know. No one by any means is diminishing September 11th. It was traumatic and it was terrible. And, you know, that's not to say that that wasn't a real dark day for this country. But at the same time, you know, there's some middle ground between what you felt there and still protecting the initial core beliefs of being American, which isn't just being, you know, Christian or being, you know, Anglo-Saxon or something like that. It's it's really just the the beliefs of freedom. Yeah. it's kind of more important to me. It's kind of like a heart clashing with brain situation here, you know, because your brain, your your beliefs in the American system and our way of life tells you that, you know, we should be tolerant of everyone, but at the same time your emotion from experiencing 9/11 takes over and you know, it does make you feel a little uneasy. So, yeah, I really don't feel like there's a clear-cut right answer here. And that's what yeah. makes it so tough. I, I I agree. At the same time, I just I feel like the country has to move forward, right? I mean, yes, you, you can't hold this, you know, kind of deep-seated. Uh, I mean, look, we all want terrorists, extremists in any religion, you know, be it Muslim or Christian or you know Jewish or whatever. We want you know all the quote-unquote bad guys out of here. There's everyone's on the same page there, and you know I'm sure, you know, all of the peaceful. You know, people of all different religions in this country would completely agree with that. But at the same time, you have to take steps forward. And our country is great for many different reasons. And there have been very influential people from all sorts of backgrounds. And to lose that, I think, is much more devastating than, you know, the attacks themselves. Yeah, that would be a terrible, terrible byproduct. Yeah. So anyway, it's a tough... It's a tough place. There's, I mean, I feel like in a lot of these situations, if you're adamantly on one side of the fence or the other, well, to be honest, I find a lot of trouble with people who are extremely leaning one way or the other just because I feel like they're neglecting one point of view that has a lot of validity to it. Um, right. Of course, then you just end up 
like uh, being in the middle and not really making a decision at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but sometimes, you know, moderation is good. I mean, a a lot of Americans are moderates. I mean, if you look at the polls, you know, most people, I mean, there, there isn't a majority of people that consider themselves either conservative or liberal or, or whatever. It's, it, you know, a lot of people in this country are, are moderates and, you know, those are the ones that decide elections. Those are the ones that help decide these debates. Keep everyone in check a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so our next topic, we, uh, we read an article, Steve sent me an article about, um, why women's sports aren't popular in the U.S. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of different reasons, both, you know, why they're currently not popular, which we can talk about. Obviously, we can also discuss just the general state of women's athletics in the country right now. Um, but, Steve, do you have any quick yeah. takes on why you think women's sports are generally marginalized and not really appreciated in both media and in attention? Well, let me let me set up the story first a little bit. Um, the reason we're talking about this is because last week uh, the USC Center for Feminist Research released a report that they release every five years, and the latest report um, on the coverage of women's sports expressed that the coverage of women's professional teams has quote nearly evaporated, and a deepening silence has enveloped women's professional soccer, basketball, golf field hockey and softball. And the author of the report, his name is Michael Mesner, he's a feminist sociologist at USC, says this is nothing short of stunning and that this is simply intolerable. So so that's the background. Um, notice that two things pop into my head immediately. One is that this is being done at USC, so you can't really take it for face value, you have to take it with a grain of salt because everything they do seems a bit shady, especially considering the recent Reggie Bush scandal and everything. And I know that doesn't have anything to do with this, but it's USC, and you can't trust well, them. Well, what's, what's actually interesting about that is that USC historically has just placed almost zero emphasis on women's sports. I mean... Right, they're all they, about they don't, paying football players. Yeah, well, they don't. They've they're like one of the most egregious offenders of not having either not supporting or just not funding women's athletics. I mean, so I think that's kind of ironic that this is coming from a U.S. Right. Well, well, the report itself is more about women's professional sports rather than college sports, because college sports. Yeah, Title IX IX dictates that the universities spend equal amounts of funding on both men's and women's sports. Which, if you look at the amount of revenue each generate, is completely absurd. And, you know, Title IX has good intentions, but it's, at the end of the day, it, it's kind of a bad law. But, you know, that's, that's a whole different issue, and maybe we can get into that on another podcast. But, um, this guy who wrote this report saying that this is simply intolerable. It seems ridiculous to me. I mean, in the list of sports that he gave, notice that he didn't list women's tennis, which does great ratings and you know is right on par in popularity with men's tennis. You know, they didn't list any of the Olympic sports, which mm-hmm. women are much more prominent in, like say gymnastics or ice skating, which mm-hmm. you know whether they're actual sports is debatable, but they're very <laughs> popular with women. And, you know, so to, so to single out, you know, specific sports that are traditionally male-dominated male and to say that those are indicative of the oppression that women's professional sports are experiencing is absolutely absurd to me. I, I, I you know, I, I think all it really is, I don't think anyone's making a conscious effort to marginalize women's athletics, or at least the media coverage of them. It's really just quality of play and interest of play. I mean, generally speaking, men played sports first. I mean, not even, we're not even talking about like the physical ability of men, but I'm just saying for almost all sports, men were the first ones to play them. You know, football, baseball, basketball, etc. So it's only natural that there's going to be more of a deep-seated loyalty and history behind all of those at, over those sports. You know, that being said, there are certain sports that are more geared towards women or, you know, feminine, feminine, uh, 
just the, the female gender, and those would be, in my opinion, sports like gymnastics or ice skating or volleyball or um, you know some of the swimming ones. And in that case, honestly, I would rather watch women play than men, just because I think that they're more well suited for that. Well, yeah, um, male ice skating is kind of creepy. Right, I don't want to watch a bunch of dudes skating on ice. I'd rather see, you yeah. know, women do it. Um, and so I think that's just human nature. But, you know, all it really is is you just follow the dollars, right? I mean, right. the fact is that more men like sports than women, and most men like men's sports, so obviously all the money goes there. I mean, in all of sports, really all it ends up being is just you just follow the money, and that's pretty much what the market demands. Right. The cover this isn't a chicken or the egg situation where, you know, more coverage and more promotion would create more demand. You know, it doesn't work like that. The market responds to the demand. So, you know, there's more coverage of men's professional sports because there's more of a demand for men's professional sports. And, you know, the reason for that you can say, oh, you know, why is that? Well, I think it all boils down to the physical aspect of things. Yeah. I mean, at the I end mean, of the day, yeah, you think... Anyone who's watched the NBA and has watched the WNBA, I mean, that's kind of the prime example. Right, right, yeah. Why do women... I mean, why do people watch the NBA f- for that example? You know, the, why do people watch the NBA? It's so that you can see the best athletes in the world jump, you know, multiple feet in the air and dunk from the free throw line. You know, you're not watching the NBA to see Candace Parker lay it up from two feet. Right. I, I will say, though, that if you understand, like, if you legitimately like a sport, and, you know, I've had Liz make this argument to me many times, and there's some truth to it, is that because, you know, if you're a basketball purist, you know, it's not all about athleticism, and a lot of it's about execution, a lot of it's about playing as a team, and in a lot of aspects, women play better as a team because they don't have the freakish physical ability to dominate, they need to have the structure and in that sense, if you're a purist, then it is – it's fun to watch from that sense. Right. Um, now, I'm never saying that I'm going to watch the WNBA or the NBA. Right. But, you know, you can't appreciate it for what it is. You just can't compare them the same way. Right. And, I mean, you just made the point as to why there's less coverage. Purists are a niche audience. You know, they're never going to appeal – to the mass audience that you need to support national coverage with, you know, just basketball purists watching it because there aren't enough. You need to be able to draw in the normal fan, the casual fan. And how do you do that? From, you know, watching physical freaks dunk over people. I mean, that's the reason why the men's sports have more coverage. Yeah. And, I mean, to be fair... I think if you even ask most women, they would rather watch men's sports. I mean, that's what the study right. also says. Right. Um, and, you know, there are certainly some who, you know, enjoy watching women's sports, and that's, you know, that's great. But I think, to be honest, that really is one of the main factors. I mean, if if women can't even support their own sports and, and they're not interested in seeing their own sports, then why should, you know, why should more dollars go that way? You know, exactly. you're not trying to capture some tr- some audience if it's not even there. Um, the WNBA it, it, has been losing money hand over fist for years and years, and yeah, it's really, I mean, it's kind of sad. It's it's being kept afloat really by the charity of the NBA, right? You know, that's the only. I mean, there isn't enough demand for it, and yet, out of the interest of equality, David Stern sees it fit to prop up this league and make sure it survives. And to, so to say that, you know, the lack of women's professional sports is simply intolerable, as this guy is saying, I, I think that's ridiculous. Because, you know, people are going out of their way in order to prop up women's professional sports. They're, they receive more support than they actually deserve based on the numbers, based on the demand. Yeah, there's really no way around it. And I think unless uh, – the the biggest thing for me would be for women to, like – excel in sports that they generate on their own. So, for example, like, I, I can't even fathom the sport right now of what it would be, but, like, whenever there's a male parallel to it, you know, generally speaking, it's going to be tough for females to succeed. <laughs> yeah, tennis is the one exception, I think. Because Yeah, of... women's tennis. I, I think softball is, is a – I mean, softball doesn't compare to baseball, but I think, if, if, I think it's a different game 
you know, it's not like you're playing, like, for example, basketball is played with the same rules the entire way, right? right. Except for, like, the three-point line and the smaller ball, right? right? Whereas softball, it's an inherently different game. You know, there's the pitchers are different, the field's different, the strategies are different. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, I really respect women's softball because I, I don't, I don't compare it to baseball at all. A lot of people compare it to baseball. I just think it's a different game. And they, you know, in that sense, I, I don't have some expectation of like, oh, well, he can't, she can't throw the ball 90 miles an hour or he can't, or she can't, you know, hit the ball 450 feet. I mean, it's just, there's a bigger ball. There's, you know, a different way of throwing. It's just the mechanics are so different that I don't even bother trying to compare them. Right. Um, and so that's why I will even occasionally watch women's softballs because I don't, bother trying to compare it to men's whereas basketball it's like i honestly couldn't care less <laughs> <laughs> yeah this isn't to say that you know they're they're not impressive athletes because i remember watching a few years ago uh, jenny finch facing mike piazza in one of those you know exhibition for charity games and jenny finch pitched from you know full-on underhand toss you know the the whole wind up deal with the softball pitching, and she struck out Mike Piazza. So wow. you know they're not you know unimpressive Jumps. athletically, but you know in softball's case especially they're just well I mean they are okay they they are less impressive athletically in a game say <laughs> basketball, but the point you made with softball being a different game is apt to that situation because, you know, that just shows you how comparable they are in a different situation right there. Yeah. Um, moving forward, we're going to stray from sports briefly. Um, you Did you happen to see Scott Pilgrim versus the World this weekend? I did. Uh, I saw it on opening day, actually. I saw it on Friday. Uh, what did you think? I thought it was really good. Okay. And, you know, I, after reading the comic books, they did, an, you know, as good a job as really they you could have hoped for of condensing six comic books into, uh, like, a less Single than two-hour movie. movie, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the books, the story takes place over, like, two years, and in, in the movie, it takes place over about two weeks. So they really did a lot of condensing, and you lose a lot of kind of the charm and the characterization that you get in the book, but that was kind of inevitable. The real shocking thing that I thought about this weekend is that it only made $10.6 million at the box office, and it got beaten out by Eat, Pray, Love, by The <laughs> Expendables, by Inception, which has been, it seems like it's been in the theaters for a month now, and I forget what other movie beat it out, but... It finished in fifth place with only 10.6 million. Oh, the other guys was the other film that beat it, and that's in its second uh, week of release. So you know, this kind of reminds you of a few months ago when Kick-Ass came out, and there was a lot of fanboy hype for that movie, but it kind of bombed as well at the box office. And so the director of Kick-Ass, Matthew Vaughn said in an interview recently that he believes the era of comic book movies is about to die soon, which is part of the reason he accepted the job of directing X-Men First Class, the next X-Men movie. But, I don't know, I'm a fanboy, I'm a kind of a geek, so <laughs> I'll end up going to these comic book movies as soon as they come out anyway, but for a non-comic book fan like yourself, Paul, I was kind of wondering what you thought of that whole situation. Um, you know, I, so yeah, exactly. I've never really been a huge comic book Because you did like Kick-Ass, right? I, I really liked Kick-Ass. I liked it a lot. I, but that, you know, it's one of those situations where if someone hadn't liked Kick-Ass and known of it ahead of time, then I wouldn't have had any reason to go. Right. Because, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's, you know, the opportunity to see a movie based on the comic books that you read when you were younger. Um, you know, that's the main draw. So as the demographic shifts and people, you know, were either too old to read those comic books, you know, they were too long ago, or we didn't read them in the first place, there's not as much of a draw. And it's different because I think, you know, everyone, I mean, I didn't read any comic books, period. You know, Batman, Superman, nothing. But I've still heard of Batman, I've still heard of Superman, I've still heard of Iron Man. But I had 
zero idea who Scott Pilgrim was until you mentioned it a few months ago. You still don't really know who Scott Pilgrim is. And I, I still don't really know anything <laughs> about Scott Pilgrim, except that he's played by Michael Cera. And so I have a, well, I would usually have a very good idea of how the movie would go, but this looks a little different than the traditional Michael Cera role. Like, right. I think that's part of the reason why it didn't do so well also, is it's not a normal comic book either. It's not like a superhero comic book movie. It's about a hipster who's in a band in Toronto, Canada. You know, it's not your normal... Perfect Michael Cera territory. Yeah. And so after reading the comic books and hearing that they were going to make a movie out of it, you know, you kind of knew that it was going to be weird, that it wasn't going to appeal to a mass audience because there are so many video game references and it moves at such a fast pace that you know that it was really a movie made someone by like, geeks for geeks, you know. Yeah, it's, someone like me would not be able to keep up with it then, probably, right? I mean, you in should terms, in terms of like uh, the background type of stuff. I mean, I think I think you should see it because I'm interested in what you're gonna think of it. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a little too weird for a mass audience. I think it, it's a little too eccentric and out there. But you know, uh, at the same time. The critics loved it. It got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is quite good. That's, that's good, yeah. I think uh, that's that's a pretty good telling indicator. I mean, because I think the big thing with a lot of these movies is that you're not, like, you have to be willing to give them a chance, right? I mean, so for example, right. like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about Iron Man, but I loved Iron Man because it was really well done. You know, the casting was good, the directing was good, you know, everything was, was really good. I mean, I feel like I had to know anything about Iron Man to enjoy that movie. Right. Um, so, uh, and that, but you know, the reason why I saw it probably was because of hype, because it had done well. And from other movies that are lesser known, I think the biggest challenge is just getting someone in to go to the, to get their butt in the seat in the first place, right? I mean, yeah, definitely. if I'm there, I'll give it, a, I'll give it a chance if I'm there. But you have to convince me of a reason why I should go there. So that's kind of my. My take on it. So if I do end up seeing it, I'll be sure to let you know. But as you know, I, I've been pretty... I mean, I think I've seen, like, two movies this summer. Inception <laughs> and Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass is my... Yeah. Kick-Ass is already on DVD. So yeah. that's not a very high success rate. And I, mean, I, I think... haven't seen Toy Story 3. I haven't seen Iron Man 2. So, anyway. <laughs> I think um, the, the bigger properties, the, the more famous properties, like X-Men, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man... Those will always be fine. Those will always make money because so many people recognize the characters. But yeah, for an indie comic, I mean, this right. isn't even the DC or Marvel or anything. This is right, exactly. published by Oni Press. So it's not a lot of people know of it to begin with. So you don't have a built-in you know, recognition. I mean, exactly. you know, not everyone has played Super Mario, but everyone knows who Super Mario is. You know, that's kind of the recognition you have with Superman and Batman and and uh, that's something that you don't have at all with Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> so I'm actually surprised there have been so many ads for Scott Pilgrim at all. You know, yeah, they've I, they've really they've, pushed the marketing. They've of this hyped thing. it a lot, especially you know, there's been a lot of trailers and much more than I would have expected. You know, when you first mentioned that, that was going to be like, you know, just almost an indie, you know, an indie film in the sense that, you know, it wasn't really going to be hyped out of the like few people that were really into it. But it's kind of been pretty different in that sense. Yeah. Josh just IM'd me right now, actually. He said he just saw Scott Pilgrim, very coincidentally. <laughs> That's funny. What did he think? He said he loved it, and he thought Jason Schwartzman is the best douchebag of all time. <laughs> we really need to get Josh onto a podcast. We do. It's going to happen. So for, for those three of you that listen, um, we that will... Don't know us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I meant the three that just listened. Oh, period. period. But, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I, I thought we had, you know, up to. I was five. hoping we had up to five. You know, yeah, I don't know. Five might be a little ambitious. <laughs> uh, but in a few weeks, we will have Josh Kim on, and we're gonna do a strictly all wire episode. And I don't know how long it's gonna go for, but I think it's gonna be great because I know that I have a lot of things to say, and I've really only talked about them with Josh, and I've really only talked about talked about them with him online, and to have the chance to like say it all in person and just bring up all those 
festering thoughts that I've had for months it will be really great. Yeah, um, so I'll have finished the series by then, hopefully, and I'll, I'll be able to give my take on it as well. And that's going to happen the week of September 8th, sometimes, 8th, 9th, 10th, one of those days. Yeah. So look forward to that. Yeah, and I'm... I'm super stoked and Josh is really stoked and it's going to be a, it's going to be a blast. Um, I, I could see much more arguing maybe when Josh gets on the podcast too. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you got to, how many more do you have? I am on season four, episode nine. Okay. So you're, you're closing I, it. Yeah. I have about 15 episodes left. I think that's okay. correct. Yeah. That's, uh, so, no, it's actually, cause well, there's ep- only 10, season five is only 10 episodes, right? Yeah. So they think you have, aren't there only 12 in season four? No, there are 13. Oh, there's 13? Okay, okay, gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's coming up pretty quick then. Yes, any, it is. uh, any impressions you want to share right now on it? Well, I don't want to say anything on season four until I've finished the, okay, okay. The, the season itself. I mean, so far, I mean, I don't remember. Did we talk about the kids at all last time? We haven't talked about the kids at all. I, mean, I, uh, I did tell you that I, I hated Naimond and... Naimond, yes. Or, <laughs> oh, was it Naimond, not Naimond? It's just Naimond. <laughs> and, you know, it, it. have you seen 90210, the new 90210? I have not. Um, Tristan Wilde's... Oh, really? Michael. Michael. Yeah, he's on that show. And, and I had not seen The Wire before I saw an episode of the new 90210. So seeing him on The Wire... As opposed to that show is a huge shock. That's night and day. That's really yeah. different. So, uh, you know, it's, it's refreshing to see him in such a better show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's great. I mean, Michael, I'm sure yeah, from this I, I've just seen, tell, my, it's I, hard not to like Michael. Yeah, so. I've just seen the episode where, uh, his, his little brother's dad comes back and okay. he's very protective of him and doesn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. So we'll see how that turns out, and once once yeah. he once I finish that, we'll we'll get back on and talk more about that. But I don't want to <laughs> I don't yeah, want to no, spoil anything right now. That's fine. That's good to hear. Yeah, and I've been on on the other end. I've been keeping it with Friday Night Lights. I think I have like three or four more episodes left in season four, and you know things have changed pretty drastically. I just gotta say that Saracen is a did an amazing job in his last few. Oh, episodes. fantastic! Right? Yeah, it's amazing yeah, it he didn't get an Emmy for that. Yeah, I mean, it's not the type of show that I feel like would usually garner that type of attention, but man, he was really, really good. It's impossible to watch that without you know pretty much crying. Yeah, and it's one of those where you you like want to just go back and rewatch it again just because he did such a good job. Well, Coach and Mrs. Coach did both receive Emmy nominations this year. Did they really? Wow. Yeah, okay. they did. So you know, it's long overdue. They've deserved nominations for the last four years of this show. Well, maybe not season two, but you know, <laughs> for the other seasons of this show, they've been absolutely fantastic. So it's good to see them get some recognition. But they've yeah, Matt quite- Saracen was completely overlooked. Zach, Zach Guilford was overlooked for that episode where his dad died. He they, he did not get nominated for best guest performance. I think. Wow, that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, you really feel for Maddie, man. He just, you know, you, he's just such a good job of kind of making you or helping you relate to him. It's impossible to ignore. So, anyway, I'll let you know how it goes when I finish the season off, and then we'll be we'll be even, and then we can finish it off in the fall. Yeah, looking forward to it. Absolutely. Um, so, lastly, we're gonna t- actually touch on some real sports here, um, some baseball, which is uh, always a fun topic. Steve, I'd like to turn it over to you. I would like to mention that the Dodgers, um, despite Steve's insistence that they were punting the pick, ended up paying uh, over $5 million to sign Zach Lee away from LSU. And it was actually really a, a coup in a lot of ways because he's a great I mean, he's a great high school prep talent. And, uh, you know, they really got him at a – I mean, obviously the, the financial cost is extensive. They got him a $5.25 million signing bonus. Yeah, most people didn't think they'd actually be able to sign Lee in the first, like, you know, Dodgers or anyone, which is why he fell so far. Right. He, they, he was projected as a top 10 talent and he fell to the Dodgers who had like the 20 something pick. And you know what? I give the McCourts a little credit for ponying up the money to sign him. But, you know, at the same time, he's, he's a draft pick. 
And you know how, you know, baseball draft picks are not like... He wants help now. He wants help right now. Yeah, well, baseball draft picks are not like football or basketball draft picks where they can come in and help your team immediately. It's going to be at least, like, two years before we see any of this guy. And by two in two years, this team is going to be completely in the toilet. You know, who knows who Matt Kemp will be dating then? Who knows who will be pitching for this team? I mean, I just don't have any faith left. And... This story that came out recently has made me decide that I am going to boycott the team for the rest of the season. And by that, I mean a half-assed boycott, because I still have three tickets left from this, the ticket packages that I purchased earlier. And the first of those games is this Sunday against the Reds. But when I go to these games, I will not be purchasing any beer or hot dogs or any other kind of concessions, I will spend as little money on the McCourts as is humanly possible. Right, and, the, and the story that I'm talking about is one that was released recently where the Dodgers were paying rent to the McCourts at a price of $14 million a year for usage of Dodger Stadium. And the strange thing about this is that the Dodgers own the land that they play on. And the first thing you say to yourself is, this doesn't make any sense. No sense at all. They own the land, and yet they are paying themselves rent. So why in the hell would any team do this to themselves? The Red Sox own Fenway, and they don't pay a cent of rent. So what are the Dodgers doing? Well, the report revealed that the rent was going to McCourt's holding company, which is of some name, I don't know, but... Major League Baseball has strict rules on owners taking money out of a team's account. And so to circumvent this, Frank McCourt is using that $14 million a year payment to kind of be laundered from the Dodgers into his own holdings company so that he can take money out of that account and use it to fund his excessively slavish lifestyle like Jamie McCourt's, you know, seven hundred thousand dollar a month expenditures or whatever. And yeah, I gotta say, it looks looks pretty shady. I, there I mean, is no absolute, there's absolutely no way where you can spin this where it would look good. This is terrible on every level. This is absolutely unforgivable. He's basically stealing money from the team, Paul. Yeah, he's just siphoning it off. Yeah, it's and yeah, and basically, okay, you can make the argument that well. You can steal money from yourself. I mean, he owns the team, so what's the problem with him taking money from his own ownership? Well, you know, that's fine if you're Frank McCourt and you don't give a shit about what the fans think. But when you've needed an ace pitcher all year, when you've needed another big bat all year, I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating to be a fan knowing that your owner is taking money away instead of investing money into the team. You know, and fine, exactly, whatever. He's not going to be here for another few years. The Dodgers, at the risk of sounding like an entitled asshole, the Dodgers should be good every year. The Dodgers, Giants, and Yankees, the old New York tradition teams, in history. Yeah, the New York teams of way back in the day should be good every year. The Yankees are the number one payroll of the East Coast. They have the biggest market. The Dodgers have the biggest market on the West Coast. They should be dominating the West every year. I don't understand why that isn't the case. It's simply yeah, it's, unforgivable. It, it, all, it all boils down to money. I mean, if... if it know, all boils baseball, down to a cheap-ass owner is what it boils down to. Who needs to well, get his ass out. Mark Cuban needs to come and buy this team immediately, or... Would you rather have Mark Cuban running the Dodgers? Yes, because Mark Cuban spends money on his team. The Dallas Mavericks famously lose money every year, but Mark Cuban doesn't care because it's really his entertainment. It's his plaything. He sinks money in the, into the team for the sake of winning. And I can respect that as opposed to Frank McCourt, who will claim to the media that he's spending money on the team, and he'll point to this Zach Lee signing as part of that. But in reality, he's doing shady things like stealing $14 million through shady rent payments. You know, it's just so frustrating. You cannot take anything that this guy does for face value. It all goes back to the moment he bought the team, 
when everyone knew that he tried to f- buy the Red Sox beforehand and had failed. But as soon as he bought the Dodgers, he came into a press conference and said, well, the Dodger fans are the best fans in the world. Well, would he really have said that if he had been successful in buying the Red Sox? You know, this guy was full of shit from the beginning. And, you know, nobody's buying his shtick now. No one ever did. It's interesting to think what would have happened if he hadn't gone through this divorce. Because, obviously, it was going down... I mean, you know, the divorce obviously isn't helping anything. But, you know, a lot of this was in place before that happened. And then there wouldn't have been any knowledge. You know, there wouldn't have been any reason for this type of information to come to light. Right. I mean, uh, if you look so at much the on-field performance, if you look at the on-field performance, three out of the last four years the Dodgers have made the playoffs, which is a, a significant improvement over what was happening with the Fox regime. But there was never so, a, any public dirty laundry aired about the Fox regime. There was never well, know, any you can argue accounting. That, you can argue that, that McCourt – I mean, I think it's more of a recent development because McCourt was willing to spend the money to go out and get Manny. I mean – and, and look how well that turned out. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, he was willing to do it, and it didn't work out that well. Or it, it did for a while. I mean, that first year that Manny was here, that first summer, was fantastic for the Dodgers. And they dealt with the head case. He paid him extra money. Gave him a huge two-year deal. I mean, obviously it didn't work out well at this point. But, I mean, at, at that stage, you could say that he was very committed. I mean, teams like the Giants would have loved their ownership to go out and get a real bat like Manny. You know, we were envious of the fact that the Dodgers went and got Manny. Well, Paul, uh, you realize it's impossible for me to be completely rational about this situation because there's <laughs> too much emotion involved and there's too much hatred boiling through my I, blood right I, now. That I think I at this point, you know, I, I think what it really shows is that the divorce for has really kind of soured the tables because, I mean, yes, the seeds were probably there in the first place, you know, that, that this wasn't really a match, you know, made in heaven or that he isn't really all that great, but... I think it's just made everything so much worse. Yeah, as far really- as franchise scandals, I don't think anything more embarrassing has happened to this franchise than the McCourt divorce. This has been the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened. It keeps getting worse, too. I feel like more details keep leaking out. and just Yes, it seems it like every week or so, there's a new report about some shady accounting or Jamie's exorbitant you know, living expenses or... There's always something that leaks out, and it's not going to stop until this divorce ends, which you know might not be for another year or so. We don't know, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. If the only thing I can hope for is that a judge decides that Frank does not own the team by himself, and thus has to split it with Jamie, and you know you you can't count on them to be able to coexist well. And neither of them by themselves will have enough money to run the team, so they'll be forced to sell the team. And that would be the ultimate dream scenario for me, because I just want these guys out of there. But, you know, what's the more likely case is that the judge will rule that Frank McCourt is the sole owner of the team, and we'll be stuck with him for another however odd many years. And I don't know if I can go through with that. I mean, I can't see myself buying another ticket until this divorce is resolved. I just can't. Well, resolved or new ownership? I mean, what's resolving the divorce? How is that going to fix anything? Because depending on the ruling of the divorce, we'll know whether or not Frank McCourt will be able to keep the team. If he does keep the team... Then you're going to support him? Well, depends on how he goes from that point forward. You know, if, if he invests more money in the team, then maybe... And, you know, because it could be that Jamie was just siphoning so much money off of him that he didn't have enough money to run the team. But, you know, that's, so basically, that's giving him a lot of benefit up, of the doubt. I if don't he makes know. up for his misdeeds, you will give him a second chance. Yes. And the first, okay. the first kind of checkpoint in that is finalizing this divorce and getting it over with. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what, uh, what happens here. Um, but very unfortunate for the Dodger organization. Yeah, feel lucky that all you have to worry about is Timmy losing his velocity. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty worrisome, though. Uh, I don't even know if I want to talk about this. But basically, Tim Lincecum, obviously his fastball velocity has gone down every year. He's become a pro from sitting around 94 till now, where he's routinely in the 90 to 92 range, and sometimes even below that. Um, And he's basically gotten wrecked since, like, 
May twentieth. I think his ERA is like four point six three since then. In August, uh, it's nine point Yeah, and that's terrible. Um, so yes, Giants fans are extremely worried about Lincecum. He's scrapped his traditional delivery, gone to the hands over the head, come back to his original delivery, and it hasn't really helped at all. He's shown flashes of being at his usual self, but the problem is if he can't locate or throw hard off his fastball, then that diminishes his changeup, which is his real weapon. Um, and so Giants fans are asking themselves what's going wrong right now. The truth is that until he figures out his mechanics, or whether it's his mechanics or whether it's something physically wrong with him, that has to get ironed out. And if it doesn't, this Giants team is going to sink pretty quickly because all the starting pitching right now down the line has been pretty inconsistent and bad. Um, but Linscombe is the one rock who not only is consistent, but just dominant. You can usually count on him for a win every time. Well, okay, and, here's uh, a question. Certainly. Yeah. Um, Dodger fans have been lamenting for the past few years that the Dodgers took Clayton Kershaw's a few picks before the Giants took Tim Lincecum. But if you look at their stats this year, Clayton Kershaw has better stats. And being that he's a few years younger than Timmy, if you had to choose one of them right now going forward, which one would you rather have? So I, th- I think I'd rather take Kershaw. Ooh, um, that's a tough call. Uh, right now, I, I would go Linscombe by a hair, maybe, maybe a little more than a hair. I do think he'll he'll right the ship eventually. But I, I do have to say, obviously, Kershaw I mean, is as talented as anyone in baseball from a pitching perspective. And that's not really a reflection of – I'm not diminishing anything he does. I think the only thing he needs to work on is his control. Right, he still um, walks too many guys. Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, I've seen Linscombe consistently bring it for an entire season with just completely dominant stuff. And I, I personally think that, you know, he's obviously had a lot of questions and concerns concerning his size and his delivery and everything like that. I think he is a phenomenal athlete, and I think that he'll figure it out eventually. I'm not saying he's ever going to reach back and get to where he was before, but I, I find it hard to believe that he could just drop off the cliff so quickly. He might need to change his approach. You know, he might have to start icing his arm or you know, handling himself better, or actually, you know, condition better and stop smoking weed. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think he's got it in him. Um, yeah, it's just, but it, it's a lot closer now than it was like two months ago. Yeah, for, I mean, for me, it's just. You worry about that small stature. You worry that he's going to end up like Pedro, where he just won't be able to sustain 30 starts a year for the next 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, I think the the thing is that really most pitchers, honestly, shelf life is just not that high. And I think that even the guys that you expect to be out there and have done it consistently, you know, a lot of guys have really, really spectacular flashes in their career, you know, like Doc Gooden or, you know, Valenzuela or, you know, guys like that. And it remains to be seen whether Tim can extend that and, you know, take his little three-year stretch and transform it into seven or eight. But, you know, you've seen small pitchers get banged up. You've seen big pitchers. I mean, guys like Pryor and Wood who had supposedly flawless mechanics, you know, they went down within a few years. And that had nothing to do with their size. I mean, they were 6'5", 220. Um so I mean, yeah, yes, but I that had more to do with concern. Dusty Baker. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, the Giants have worked Tim Linscombe a ton. I mean, Linscombe threw, I think, the second most pitches last year behind Verlander, and you know he was routinely going, you know, at least 110 to 120 a start. And yeah, on a smaller frame, that is going to hurt more. Um, He's averaging 106 this year, which is okay, pretty much the same as Clayton Kershaw is averaging. I think the the big thing on both of those guys, the reason why Linscombe's probably gone down is because he just hasn't been as effective. Right. There's no reason to let him throw 120, 120 pitches if he's you know only in like the fourth inning and he's already thrown 95. And Kershaw is one of those guys who I think I think he'll get it. I think he's going to end up uh, you know once he harnesses the the walk rate and brings that down, his pitches will go down and he should be able to go deeper into games. Um, cause he's kind of in that young pitcher stage right now where like he'll throw six erratically spectacular innings where it's like he only gave up like a hit, but he walked like four and struck out eight. Um, he only has five more walks on the year right now than Timmy though. Uh, okay. Which probably says more about 
the kind of season Timmy is having than what Kershaw is having. But I'm at a Nazi stretch where he walks five or for three. Yeah, I'm very optimistic with Clayton Kershaw's career. Yeah, I mean, he should still be on the up and up, and I think that it's it's probably a year or two still before he really harnesses it all and brings it all together. Yeah, if he can uh, learn to stop nibbling so much, then I think he has a Cy Young in his future. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely has the stuff to do it. Um, I mean, the fastball-curve combo is, you know, one of the best in baseball. I mean, the curve itself is one of the best in baseball. Right. Um, so, yeah, and Lincecum... You know, Linscombe made great strides with his command earlier this year, but it's really deteriorated. Oh, sorry, he made great strides earlier this season. I mean, he he started off on like a an absolute tear um, with the strikeout to walk ratio, but you know, ever since then, and I think that's for him. This is the main reason why I feel like he still has a chance is because his command is the thing that's really more worrisome to me than his velocity. I mean, he just he can't throw strikes where he needs to. Like he can't throw. 92 at the knees, so he'll get 92 up a little bit or something. And I think that's why he's getting hit harder. And, um, for walks. And obviously the velocity, the velocity points more to like a physical part. But the command, I think, is more of a mechanical part. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. Command more, is always more worrisome than velocity. Because you look at Jamie Moyer, someone, you, you know, you can survive with great control and no velocity if you've got, you know, even semi-decent stuff. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, Lincecum's stuff, the, the thing is that, yes, he's been pretty mediocre lately, but, I mean, he still has the potential upgrade. I mean, his changeup is still one of the best in baseball. His curve is still pretty good. His fastball is is bad right now, but I think it's more of a function of him being unable to put it where he needs to. I mean, he could throw four miles an hour harder, but if he continues to throw them in the spots that he does, he's not going to get it. You know, it's not going to be that much better. So, yeah, we'll see if it he is put together a good home stretch here. Yeah, honestly, if I if I was the Giants, you know, this is a really tough call. Um, I probably last month would have said I maybe would have skipped him a turn or at least stretched him out a little bit. Yeah, give him an extra couple days of rest here or something. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that would make for a guy like this to come at this point, that's really what he needs. Yeah. And you know, now, now it's probably too late. You can't do it because you're, I mean, it's almost September and every single game for this team is going to matter a great deal. But back then, I think that would have been a perfect situation to buy him a little bit of time. And his last start that came on more than four days rest was coming out of the All-Star break when he threw a shutout against the Mets. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. It easily could be, but that would be a, a good indicator to give him a little more time off and help him get the velocity back up. So, Unfortunately, the Giants' hopes are really resting on Linscombe and uh, the rest of the staff to start picking it up. I don't know if they'll be able to do it, though. Do you think that they're going to make the playoffs at this point? Because I mean, it's just a lot I felt a lot better a week and a half ago than I do now. Um, I, the Padres, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them stumble at some point, but they've built such a large lead now. I think it's like yeah, five or six I think they've now. pretty much got the West one, and you're looking at trying to get the wild card. Exactly. But at and this point, wild card, it's tough because you got, I mean, you have whoever's you know in the Central, which at this point are the Cardinals, who you know, on paper as scarier probably than the Reds. Uh, as well as the Phillies. Who the Phillies, gone, yeah. The Phillies' rotation is so good now, and they're getting their all, their guys back. And St. Louis, I mean, Carpenter and Wainwright are so good this year. I mean, Wainwright especially. It's it's really daunting if you're a Giants fan. I mean, I don't really feel too confident for you, Paul. I'm, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I felt a lot better a few weeks ago, and honestly, I have zero concerns. Well, not zero concerns. I'm not really concerned about the offense at all. But what's really disheartening is the fact that the starting pitch is really falling apart. And, um, I mean, because that's the bread and butter of this team. And as long as the starting pitching was there, I always felt like, you know, the Giants would have enough opportunities to eke out wins and kind of win games they shouldn't win. Um, but at this point, it doesn't really look nearly as promising. I still think that there's, uh, I'd say like a 30% chance that the Giants would make the playoffs, 30 40%, only because you're fighting against three teams for that wild card spot instead of just, you know, one for the division. Um, but I, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done, and I don't, 
I wasn't a fan of this as a Guillen trade, although he's hitting pretty well so far. <laughs> uh, I just thought he was unnecessary. I would have rather the Braves got Derek Lee today. I would have rather they Derek did. Lee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a. Although Derek Lee did have a no trade clause, so he, he, true, true. The Angels actually agreed the to Angels, deal for him. Yeah, but he tried to get him, reneged that deal, and he didn't want it. So yeah, you don't know. Yeah, um, who knows if whether Derek Lee liked the barrier or not? <laughs> true, but I would have rather, assuming he was receptive to it, I would have much rather had Derek Lee than Jose Guillen. Definitely. I mean, definitely. When Kansas City <laughs> drops Jose Guillen, that's saying something, you know. <laughs> Especially when you know that Ian's going to end up playing every day, so we'll see. I mean, he's done well so far, so I can't complain. Yeah. But. All right, uh, let's finish up here. We're nearing the hour mark, so let's move straight to the Mary Buff kill for the week. And I guess I'll go first this week. This week I have three talented actresses, actresses who have displayed good work in the past, but for some reason find it necessary to do an awful chick flick every now and then, and in some cases more than every now and then. Now, of course, if you hear this description, the first actress that pops in your mind is Kate Hudson. But Kate Hudson hasn't done a good movie since Almost Famous, and we used her in the MLB Girlfriends uh, Mary Boff kill a few weeks ago, so I didn't want to use her again. So we're going to use three other actresses who have displayed some talent, yet find it Necessary to do awful chick flicks every now and again. So the, we have Reese Witherspoon, Anne Hathaway, and Jennifer Garner. So go for it, Paul. Okay. I've always been a huge Jennifer Garner fan of those three. And I've always, uh, I don't know, I've always felt that she's very good looking and, you know, she has that kind of down to earth thing going. So I think I would marry Jennifer Gardner. So you um, forgive her for Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and 13 Going on 30? Um, the thing is, I haven't really seen anything <laughs> with Jennifer Garner besides Alias and like maybe Juno. Those might be the only two. Yeah, ever. she was great in Juno. Yeah, I I don't really have. I guess for all three of these actresses, I haven't really seen anything bad <laughs> because I don't really watch any of them. So I'm going more purely on looks and like the very brief exposure I've had to them. So um, I'll marry Jennifer Garner. I really don't like Reese Witherspoon. Uh, she just kind of annoys me for some reason. Really? Maybe, I guess she doesn't annoy me, but I just I don't see what the hype is about her. So I'm gonna chuck her, and then I'll uh, I guess I'll fuck uh, Anne Hathaway because oh. she's the third one left. Interesting. Although she's kind of really skinny, like like too skinny, skinny, like unhealthy skinny. Yeah, like bordering on anorexic skinny. Yeah, like. Just kind of unhealthy looking. Well, I'm kind of the opposite of you. I really love Reese Witherspoon. I'm a huge fan okay. of hers. So okay. I, I think I'd marry her. Um, okay. And I think I'd kill Anne Hathaway. She kind of has some crazy eyes, and you know, yeah, her eyes are. Yeah, when you're con- comparing her to the other two, I think she is. I mean, she's attractive, but she. I think she's not as attractive as Jennifer Garner, who I would then fuck. So yeah, that's that's how I worked mine out. I don't. You don't like Reese Witherspoon, really? I I really love her. I don't know. She's, she's too. She's all kind of the same. She's very like <laughs> plain. Not plain, but I don't know. Her personality doesn't really have any. It's like kind of one dimensional to me. Like it's just very, just straight up bubbly. You know what I mean? So you think of Legally Blonde when you think of her? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, that's like I said, I, I base everything on like one movie. <laughs> okay, so, fair uh, enough. Fair enough. That's that's pretty much it for me. <laughs> I haven't even seen anything with Anne Hathaway in it. I mean, I know what she looks like, but I I can't honestly say. Yeah, I, I can't. Really I, God, I can't. I haven't really seen anything with her in it. I, I, oh, I saw Get Smart, and she was I in know, that. She was she, in that with. With Steve Carell, and she played Steve Carell's love interest, and she's just way too young for Steve Carell, so that was a little weird. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. I feel pretty good about the Gardner pick, so I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, she's pretty great. Yeah. Okay, well, my trio for you is um, kind of <laughs> reusing that whole uh, TV show theme. Going back to the... Uh, Friday Night Lights theme with the three vixens on that show who are Tyra Collette, 
I would use their real names, but I don't know what her real name is. Tyra Collette. I think her real name is Adrian Palicki. Okay. Lila Garrity and Julie Taylor. Um, so go for it, Steve-O. All right. I think this one's pretty clear-cut and easy for me. I would marry Lila Garrity, fuck uh, Tyra Collette, and Chuck Julie Taylor. And the reason for that is because Julie Taylor is an annoying and immature and drama queenish as, you know, a little teenage girl. And even though she's really cute, I, I feel like I have to get rid of her. You know, Tyler, Tyra Collette is just really sexy and really hot, so I think I would do her. And Lila Garrity, I mean, she ended up going to the best college out of all of them. I, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> she's got the most upside. Yeah, she's got the most upside. She's She's absolutely beautiful. You know, and you know she's smart, and she's you know she's very kind, and she's a good daughter, as you can if tell if you watch the episodes that you know she's the only one that sticks with her dad after her other two siblings run off to California to be hippies with her mom. She's the only one that stays in Texas, so I think she has a good moral fundamental structure in her life. I mean, if if you look if you look over. The whole Tim Riggins thing. I, if you, I mean, if you disregard that, and I realize that's a big thing to disregard, <laughs> but I think Lila Garrity is the clear-cut winner as far as marriage is concerned here. Okay. You know, your reasoning makes a lot of sense to me. It all sounds, you know, very, very logical, and you pretty much almost talked me into getting with those three in that order. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, that's not the way that I initially. Stop it. So, my initial take was that I actually really like Julie Taylor a lot. And yes, she is kind of annoying. And yeah, she's a bit of a drama queen. But I think she's got a lot of spunk. And she, like, is willing to stick up for herself, but has a good kind of down to earth, like, sense of humor about it, um, which I. Active. And I mean, she's yeah, she's really cute. But if she didn't cry every other episode, I think I'd be. She much cries more a lot, but you know, I think it's know, endearing, yeah. <laughs> endearing cry. So I think I would probably marry her, actually. Okay. Uh, maybe a bit of a bit of a surprise. Then I have some trouble because basically, so so I agree with everything you said about Lila being, you know, she stands by her family, by her. Her boyfriend, you know, I mean, even a better example would be going back to Street when he right, got hurt. Yeah. She was hurt from the, from the beginning and well into his depression and everything. And that was, you know, very, very telling. So, I, you know, if I was to pick, probably my better judgment would be to take Lila because you know what you're getting and she's obviously gorgeous. So what I don't like about Lila is that, I don't know. Her her voice just kind of annoys me. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, very annoying. It's very. It's just airy. like I mm-hmm. seriously can't take her talking. It's just like <laughs> it's so like wispy and like I don't know. It just it bugs the crap out of me. Um, and that's not a good reason at all to not marry someone. Um, but I think that I don't know. It's just very like very safe, and she doesn't really. It's not she doesn't fight back, but she doesn't you know kind of give back in the way that you want to give and take relationship. So, okay, so that's not, I'm not making a decision yet. And then Tyra, I think, has, <laughs> has really proven herself to be very capable and very, you know, she's got her demons, but she also is willing to stay focused to what she wants. Now, all that being said, um, when it comes down to looks, I think Lila is just gorgeous. And Tyra is, you know, obviously very attractive too, but I think Lila is just gorgeous. And, for that reason, I'd have to fuck Lila and Chuck Tyra. Interesting. Very interesting yeah. indeed. Because you'd think, you know, Tyra, the more wild one, that she would be better in bed. Yeah, and and Tyra definitely oozes more sexiness than Lila, but I just, Lila's face is just so gorgeous. I just can't get away from it. Yeah. Derek Jeter <laughs> is a lucky man. Yeah, he is. It's, it's kind of... Because, uh, like, I don't really like Lila's character, but she's just so beautiful. I just... Can't get over it. Yeah. So. Understandable. Maybe I should, Understandable. Maybe I, should, I mean, she's beautiful and she's so understanding and, like, caring. She would make a, a great one. She is she really, like, the dream girl, huh? She's, like, the perfect all-American girl. 
Lila Garrity. Yeah. I mean, other than the whole Tim Riggins thing, but you know, other than that, you know, Rig- hard- Riggs is a good guy. I, I mean, he's different. <laughs> well, in recent seasons, yes. Since Mexico, yes, he's a, he has been a very good guy. <laughs> um, yeah, that first that first kind of you know cheating thing with Riggs was definitely bad. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable. Um, but no, nope, there you go. Maybe next week. I kind of want to do like. I'm not saying the bottom three of Friday Night Lights, but like I would like to make it tougher to decide with like, you know, it's one of those situations where like you kind of don't feel too good about picking one for a certain place. Right. Yeah. Another one where it's, you know, there's no right answer. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, on that note, um, I think that'll wrap up this episode. So uh, catch us next week and we will talk to you guys all then. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it.